0: You are now entering The Transit, transit Zone. Zone. Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia.
1: I go Kingston in Combo in New South Wales. And Tim in South Bank in Melbourne.
0: We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record and produce these podcasts. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Beepai people of the Port Macquarie region of New South Wales. We pay respect to their elders. Margot, Tim, it's a thrill. It's a thrill, a veritable thrill to see you all again. It's been a long time between drinks and for various reasons which we can possibly touch on. The Transit Zone's up and running again. We'll be doing various interviews with various people over the next coming months. We've got a mountain of things to talk about. But Margot, I was thinking back to a conversation you and I had before we even started these podcasts. It was about coronavirus world. March the 15th, 2020 is a date that stays in my mind because that's the day I went into lockdown, which I now call home detention. And we saw the coronavirus world unfold in many various ways. Here in Melbourne, it was the rich people coming back from Aspen who were bringing COVID back to Melbourne. And then, of course, it changed dramatically pre the vaccines. You've had COVID. It got me as well just a couple of months ago, early March this year. My whole family's had it now. Tim... We want to know why. What are you doing? Some pact with the devil or something you've got. You haven't had COVID yet. You're lucky. And I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I guess Margot would agree. You didn't have the antivirals. I had the antivirals and I had five vaccinations. So got through it. But it's the aftermath of it that people don't talk about very much. And then long COVID. But Margot, the arc of coronavirus world, well, the arc of the COVID pandemic has just been remarkable, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, I'm really glad. Um, I think it was your idea to call it the, the transit zone. Peter, I yes. remember the the first episode we did, and we each did an essay, That's and right. mine was: "We'll have to work out where our real home is because, <laughs> you know, we're going to have to be locked down." And of course, since then, it was very, very clear that people belong to a state. All the states took charge. Someone will have to research this, but to me, you learnt about community d- during COVID. You're locked down. You got five Ks. You work out. You know who needs help, etc. And I think that has had a lot a lot to do with the, the rise of the independents and even the Greens. I mean, you think about it, COVID, I know a number of people in the community independence movement, professional women mainly, who were forced to stay at home, thought, geez, after the bush bushfires, remember the bushfires were just before COVID, I'm going to try and do something. And Older people across Australia learned how to do Zoom. And you actually, particularly in the regions, I think, you actually got a sense of community across the region. You could actually communicate across the region. To me, the other big thing which I I don't fully understand is that a lot of big city people have sold up, banked half it in their super and decided to live in the country, decided they want to have a, a more relaxed life with a bit more nature. And, of course, that was due to the fact that people realised they could work from home. Also, I think in retrospect, the Morrison government completely overstimulated the economy and, and you had, oh, well, we'll pay you to do renovations, et cetera, so the builders are now going through a crash after the boom. And I honestly think that the election result can be partly attributed to the combination of bushfires and COVID.
0: Tim, there's Margot talking about community, and I'm not disagreeing with it, but Think back to what happened in Sydney when Scott Morrison and Gladys Berejiklian sliced and diced that city demographically, the housing towers here in Melbourne and various other incidents around lockdowns and COVID, and the overarching thing about the number of deaths. It's well over 20,000 in Australia now. That's a stunning figure, isn't it? And, and the shutdown of the the daily data, that rhetoric that the pandemic is over all that that went on. So we've got two conflicting narratives here, haven't we?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think there's probably, you know, a bit of a best of times, worst of times narrative that you can throw over this. I I agree with all the points that Margot made. It it definitely had an effect on the election. It definitely brought out, it reminded people in a way that probably nothing else could, that you require government, you require mm. collective action to to get things done. And not surprisingly, that also brings out the counterforce, which is that people worry about government overstepping the mark, etc. So it unleashed a lot of, particularly from the right, objections to everything from vaccines to lockdowns to whatever. And it's played into forces that were already there. But again, you know, it was it was the big moment that, managed to unleash those things because of the nature of the, the pandemic that we faced. You've seen the rise of these various, I'd still call them fringe groups, anti-vaxxers, shading over into neo-Nazis have clearly come to the fore in a way that they um, would probably wouldn't have so quickly before. So we've had both. But I think I would really stress that the net effect has been positive, that it has reinvigorated a sense of community and a, and a sense of there are just some things that need collective action. And COVID was very obviously that, especially right at the beginning when we didn't know what the hell to expect. No-one knew what was going to happen, how bad it was going to be. And I think, you know, basically we, we reacted in the right way. I think the trick now is to get that same sense of urgency into how we react to climate change, because that's obviously something that also needs a collective response led by strong government. And and I think we're still a long way from that.
0: And that's what we're going to explore in our conversation today. But Tim, I'm thinking that we're talking about community as induced or not induced by the COVID and all the rhetoric that went around it. And I'm thinking back to those early days when, with, a, with a, such a strong sense of community we talked about letting the old people die remember that stuff very early on take one for the team and all that sort of stuff and also face masks the, the way face masks were demonized and continue to be you hardly see a face mask here in Melbourne I had a report from Brisbane that there are more face masks out and about in Brisbane but face masks got caught up rationality was kicked to the curb and face masks got caught up in that they signified the tyranny of you like they signified overreach of government authority and we're not going to put on face masks just because you tell us to, whereas it's been well proved that face masks are a really important measure, a public health measure. I came across a nurse in the Royal Melbourne Hospital just a few weeks back and I said, have you had COVID yet? And she said, no. And it's amazing, she said, because I've mixed with so many COVID patients. And I said, to what do you attribute that then, that you've got away with it? She said, good face masks, put on properly, good PPE. There's someone right in the midst of it, COVID everywhere. And she didn't get COVID, mainly, I think, because of face masks.
2: The point that you make that right at the beginning, there was definitely this, I think it was a very small percentage of people in general, and in the media, who did really run that line that it was in the news limited papers. That, and actually, I remember quoting someone from the Financial Review as well, you know, saying, Oh, well, you know, my dad's in his 60s. He's had a good run. <laughs> He's had a
0: life. <laughs>
2: uh, no, oh, well. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of that around. I, I think a lot of it was just sort of a knee-jerk. It was a way of expressing, I don't want to do what the government tells me. It's a particularly unfortunate expression of, of, of that, I think. The mask is such a, you know, an obvious visible symbol of something that I, I, I guess maybe it got caught up in that. The the semiotics of it, it just became unmissable. So the political class at a collective level decided, okay, well we're just not gonna worry about this in the same way that we used to, and we'll just see what happens. And and I still haven't really got my head around that. Because as you say, you know, it's still ongoing. There's still a lot of deaths. The masking would actually help. It seems an obvious public health measure to address all those issues, but no government in Australia is going to do it, federal or state. And I guess it does speak to some invisible line was crossed maybe in about, what, February Mm. 2022 or something like that. We're just we're not going back to that. Yes, yes. Uh, after the Omicron outbreak and all the trouble that that caused.
1: Yeah, it, it's really complicated. Like, remember, the, the right was absolutely convinced that Daniel Andrews was going to be thrown out of office because, you know, he had the worst record in the world and so many lockdowns, etc. That didn't happen. On the other hand, Tim, you have to be right. There was a time once most people were vaccinated for the second or third time there was an overall feeling that actually we have to live with this because we have to live our lives and you know coming out of it we've got this huge structural deficit we've got this huge debt i'm i'm not complaining about what morrison did but it it is it has been a real shock to the economy, and it's happened all around the world. There came a time when collectively, I I think we said, right, well, we've got our vaccines, we're doing our best there, we're trying to be a bit careful, but we, we just can't go on like this. And, you know, to see the ads now, you know, some happy person says, oh, well, if you feel like it, go and get your mask and make sure you've got your vaccination. Something has changed. There's no doubt about it. But governments which impose the strong measures have not been punished. One of the many reasons why Scott Morrison was punished was because he wasn't consistent, because he said, oh, all right, Gladys, I'm glad you've lifted that, and then it had to come. Like, he was, he was all over the shop. Go right back to the beginning, Tim. Remember when he said, no problem, I'm going to the footy? Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. You know,
1: like, it, it, he was never, and let's get down to tin tax. You know, why did Labor win the election? WA. Why did WA flock to Labor? Four seats? Because the Morrison government joined with Clive Palmer to challenge the lockdown laws and never, ever forgiven. Added to that, he later accused WA residents of trying to be cave dwellers. So, I mean, I think we can put a a, a fair whack of responsibility on his response to to COVID for, for the loss of the government.
0: And Tim, can you see that much difference between what Labor's doing now, despite sort of vague promises during the campaign about, we're going to do better on COVID? They haven't done much, have they?
1: Aged care. age fucking care. Uh, You've got to have a nurse there. You've got to have, you know, um, proper care. You've got, on aged care, they, they are delivering, in my opinion. Maybe that's all they're doing differently, but boy, oh boy, they've...
2: It was ground zero in a lot of ways, wasn't oh.
0: it? It was ground zero. We lost so many elderly Australians. And if you look at the data, it's predominantly in that age group, but not entirely. And then the other one that's really coming to haunt us now is long COVID, Tim. Yes. And that just was not factored into the public health equation at all during that leading period. Well, it's still not much, but long COVID is really starting to tell. Yeah,
2: I, I think so. I know a few people who were infected before any of the vaccines existed way back in March 2020, and they still have COVID. And it's it's quite debilitating. You know, I could tell you some stories about a lot of it's down to extreme lethargy. It's really difficult to get up the energy. And there's, there's you know, fairly young people, 50 and below, who, you know, were active and healthy, and it's taken a toll. So, And and the thing is, we don't really know what it is. We don't know how to treat it. Yeah, it's going to be an ongoing issue for a long time, I think.
1: I got a friend who picked up from the airport on um on Saturday and she was the only one wearing a mask on the on the whole plane. And I said, Well, you know, why are you still doing this? And apart from, you know, meeting a lot of people every day, she said, It hasn't been properly explained that COVID can increase your risk of heart attack and respiratory events later. If the government had sort of got more into that, had had been prepared to to, to go there. I'd say there would have been quite a few more mask wearers. It's so interesting, isn't it, that like that, that all of a sudden we went, right, that's it.
0: And of course, let, let's move off COVID because I'm getting depressed all over again. But um, I want to talk about the referendum now. But just as a final comment, the next pandemic, which most experts say is inevitable, I just don't think, Tim, we're very ready for the next one.
2: No, I don't think we ever want to think about it. I'm not sure I want to think about it. It's a worry, and. There's actually a little one going around at the moment. There's a lot of flu around at the moment. Which you've I had? Which I had a really bad day. I, I was as sick as I've been in 10 years, I think. Having missed COVID, it, it really kind of hit me. I was bedridden for the best part of a work. So if something else comes along, yeah, I'm not sure what we're going to do.
0: The referendum, Margot, here we are. I listened to uh, Parliament yesterday during... Quite a few speeches. I was out on the road with uh, news radio on, listening to Parliament, and heard Kay Cheney give a very fine speech. Then I heard David Littleproud from the Nats, the Nationals, give a really, really depressing and ordinary speech, and the same old, same old stuff there. So the referendum, how are you seeing it?
1: I was genuinely shocked when Dutton said that there would be a an official Liberal Party position. I, I thought it was pretty obvious that you'd go conscience vote. The main reason is, do you really want to... You've already turned your back on your, your blue ribbon base. Do you really want to walk away so fast? And in a way, I suppose, he didn't have a choice. The reason he gave for saying an official no when Julian Leeser had to resign... And you'd have to say, it, like, why on earth would you put a long-term um, activist, conservative activist for The Voice... Why would you make him Aboriginal affairs... But are you trying to emasculate him by forcing him to shut up? I mean, it was completely obvious he'd, he'd resign. And, and Dutton's reason was the great majority of my party opposes the voice. Now, if that isn't the full stop after what I still see as a, a split in the Liberal Party at the last election, that's it. I, I cannot see how there is any place for true Liberals in that party anymore. I mean, to see Simon Birmingham say, <laughs> look, I, I sort of hope for a yes, but I'm not going to say yes or no, and I'm not going to say how I vote. I'm actually going to shut up. To say that you have to lose your voice on a huge matter of conscience, you know, it's just hard to see. And
0: we've got the recent model of the Republic when in fact you had liberals and nationals. Yep. Being on one side or the other, openly and actively.
1: And so, what you saw yesterday is you saw Dutton and Little proud. I mean, I, I just I just can't describe their their cynicism. But then you saw two what I see two Liberal independents stand up: Kate Cheney, the independent MP for Curtin in WA, and Bridget Archer, the Liberal member for Bass, which was Australia's most marginal seat, and she won it by divorcing herself from Morrison. So you're seeing the fact that liberalism has got a voice. And it is basically outside the Liberal Party. I mean, what are the Liberal Party going to do with Bridget Archer? I mean...
0: (laughs) Her speech contained an interesting background on the history of Tasmania and what happened to Indigenous people there. Another great speech, I thought. Um, but the the, the small-mindedness of the Little Proud speech was just stunning to me. It was just specious, shallow, the thing about closing the gap's not going to happen, and the, the old stuff about local representation, et cetera, et cetera. How much of this stems back, Margot, in your opinion, as a Queenslander and me too, to the combination of the Nats the Nationals and the Liberal Party in Queensland and how much do they dominate the current liberal parliamentary party those who caucus with the liberal party in canberra
1: well this was the the big warning by the um the moderates who who lost office at the election that if you get rid of us then it will be a reactionary right party and and of course the response to that was well you've got no bloody influence anyway so that after the election the power base of the coalition is in queensland and the power base of the Greens is in Queensland. <laughs> it's like, a, whoa. The LNP, I thought, I still think, I think that a demerger has to be on the cards. You know, what happened to the LNP after the merger was exactly as George Brandis predicted, which it is, it is now not a Liberal Party at all. And the, the example I give is, I don't know, two or three years ago, Anastasia put up uh, a bill to decriminalise abortion. Three Liberals voted yes two of whom were chased out of the party by pre-selection losses. Now, you know, in my day when there was a separate Liberal and and National Party, the Liberal Party was basically in favour of of decriminalising abortion. Obviously, it's become much more hard right and that there really is no place for Liberals in the LNP. If you look at your Senate candidates, they're all hard right. So obviously, we've got a, a huge realignment that we're watching. Dutton has accepted that realignment. But the problem he's got is that he said no to every cost of living adjustment that Labor's tried to make. He's basically at the moment refusing to accept that JobKeeper has to rise. He is um, saying he doesn't want wages for low paid to rise. So why would the, the working class move to him. I just can't see it. It's a failure of imagination on my part unless they're doing they're going full on GOP and going, okay, we're just going to go on culture wars and and, and see what happens. I, I just I can't see what their path is at the moment, particularly because labor is is so blatantly centrist. Dutton on the on the right saying no to everything, Um, including a small tax increases on gas companies, FFS. And then you've got the Greens being an opposition from the left, which um, I think is being being quite effective. I think Labor is quite well placed in the centrist position. A lot of people say, oh, God, the left's going to move to the Greens. I, I can't really see that, except in a couple of, maybe a couple of inner city seats. I think it's been a really careful well-judged government myself, and the aim is to build trust so that they can put up a reform agenda next term. Now, whether that works or not, I don't know, but I just think this year has been really, really positive. Two extra reasons. One, the parliament has come into its own. I mean, I just loved it that Dutton sort of throws out, let's ban gambling ads on on sports and Zoe Daniel comes up and says, hi, here's my bill. Want to support it? The parliamentary committees are now really important. And the other thing that's happened is civil society has not woken up. They're always trying, but they're talking to each other. There's all sorts of ideas. You know, it sort of reminds me a bit of the Hawke-Keating government in the early days when I was in the gallery. And well everyone talked about was policy. So there's a to me, the, the, the zeitgeist shifted the election, it's pretty positive so far. It hasn't gone backwards. it's It's gone forwards and it's it, it's um, much more vibrant. I mean, to see that push on Dole and to see the Labor backbench starting to have it, you know, say a few things. Now the Labor backbench is saying a few things on housing. I can't see that that's an issue about unity or whatever. That is about let's keep talking. and And look, how can Labor... Say, all right, we'll abolish this and the tax, tax cuts, or we'll do something about this or that. The only way they can do it is if the public asks them to and says it's the right thing. And I think the vibe and the action in in civil society is making that possible.
0: Tim, in the Little Proud speech yesterday, he ran the foofy line again, the referendum all about detail, which is absolute rubbish, really. And they, they keep running this line, what's the detail and all that stuff. No matter how often other people have said, it's not about the detail, the parliament will have the legislation later once the referendum changes through, etc. Do you lay, and I think you may, having read some of your more recent pieces, do you lay much blame at the feet of Albanese himself and his government? Not Linda Burney necessarily, who I think is paddling very hard and juggling a lot of balls at the moment, but have they been too timid in the way they've put this forward and and the intensity with which they've fought it?
2: Oh, I think on everything. As I said in a post the other day, no Labor government in history has been gifted a bigger opportunity to be a bit brave. The Liberal Party's falling apart. The Murdoch press, who were the other part of the Labor opposition, have never had less influence with middle Australia than they've ever had. I take Margot's point. I understand the logic of Albanese's position about needing to take people with you. But I I think we kind of cross a point where you're actively slowing down the ability to take people with you by your very gradualism, let alone, you know, various Labor governments outlawing protests and stuff like that. How do you expect to get momentum around change if you if you do things like that i think they are going a little slow on a number of things just because of the unique situation that they're in there's a there's a huge opportunity to do more at the moment that they're not taking advantage of in my estimation having said that the first thing albanese mentioned in his acceptance speech on election night was the voice parliament. that was a fairly brave thing to embrace at that point i think and, you know, he's obviously genuinely committed to it, but I, I, I think he has been a little guilty of soft-selling it. Him personally, I mean. Maybe his logic is to give Linda Burney the run with it, but I think there's a role for the Prime Minister here. The, the argument that there's not enough detail is obviously a furphy. It's obviously bullshit. It's obviously just something to say for um, a no-case that doesn't really have a case. Having said that, there is an article in the AFR built around Kos Samaras' most recent research. And according to that research, there is a feeling amongst people who are basically yes voters, they're not sure what the voice looks like at the end of the day. Now, obviously, that's not what the referendum is about, but it doesn't hurt to give people a better idea about what they're actually going to get. That recent Book that just came out by Kerry O'Brien and Thomas Mayo called *The Voice to Parliament: The Handbook*. Yes, that actually sets out some of the parameters, and I read that recently. And a lot of that was new to me, and it was it was interesting. And I and I think there's a case for making that more visible. I also think there is a little bit of a a contradiction at the heart of the way Albanese is presenting the case. On the one hand, it's this big nation-building, nation-changing reform, but on the other hand you know, it's just a voice. They're not going to ha- really have a say. This is the point Senator Lydia Thorpe makes about it. It's exactly. a contradiction at the heart of it. And I think he needs to address that because I think there's an answer to it. I wrote quite a long post the other day addressing that very concern. I don't think the voice as it is constituted as an advisory body is necessarily a weak thing at all. In fact, I, I think it's the opposite, especially given that it's going to be part of the constitution.
0: You mentioned Lydia Thorpe, who represents a, a particular View from the left, not from the right, obviously. Do you have sympathy with her views about both the sequencing? voice truth treaty sequence. And secondly, the whole concept of sovereignty. I think that's an important aspect.
2: Yeah, I I don't necessarily think it affects whether you vote yes or no. At the end of the day, I have deep sympathy for her position, which I would characterize as a progressive left. She hasn't officially said no at this stage, but everything she talks about makes it sound like it's a no vote. But, But maybe she comes to the same conclusion that there's nothing positive that comes from a no vote. And, and maybe reluctantly she goes along with it. I've changed my mind on this a little bit. I was actually much more sympathetic to her general position, especially about the um, sequencing. I was really of the view that treaties should come first, but I'm a little less convinced of that now on the grounds that I think the voice actually provides the body to which the treaty can be addressed and it brings together the diverse groups from around the the nation in a way that gives a body to address the treaty to. So I've probably changed my mind on that.
1: Tim, I just had a very weird thought, okay, which you can disabuse me of. I wonder if part of the, the slowness, the gradualism of this year is that he's trying to stay popular and you know draw as many people together to get that yes vote like would it be harder to get the yes vote if he said right I'm going to abolish the stage three tax cuts he's trying to get across a feeling of of unity
2: yeah I, I think that's right but I think he's misreading it you know who who are the people who are most who are most likely to be shitty about getting rid of the stage 3 ca- tax cuts it's it's really the kind of the Community independence seats that used to be liberal, you know, they're the main ones. I actually think you have within those communities now a willingness to put national interest ahead of personal interest in a way, not not completely, but in a way that hasn't existed before. I don't think he's going to lose their yes vote if he does something with stage three tax cuts. Having said that about stage three tax cuts, I don't think he's got any intention of getting rid of the stage three tax cuts. I think I actually think he believes in the stage three. I think he's quite happy to have the stage three tax cuts go through Maybe he goes to the next election with some variation on them. But again, I don't think one precludes the other. If that's what he's thinking, I think he's misreading it.
0: You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. Margot Kingston, Tim Dunlop and I are looking ahead to the challenges and opportunities of 2023. Let's take a break from Labour Party and the referendum just for a moment. We'll circle back to some of those issues, Tim. I just want to take a break and talk about dress-ups and silly hats. The coronation, Tim, where were you? I really didn't want to watch it. I had no interest in it. It ended up being on, so we watched it. And i was and sort of glad
2: I did because it was, I think it had the opposite effect. I think a lot of people exactly. in Australia would have looked at it and gone, what the fuck are we doing with this still locked into our constitution i I don't think it did the monarchy any good in a country like australia so it was interesting to watch it seems so out of time and with none of the the alleged excitement and grandeur charles just
0: looked miserable he was morose all the
2: time the nice words that Particularly, the Archbishop of Canterbury was saying we're completely undermined by, you know, about equality and diversity and everything. We're completely undermined by the reality of the coronation. It's
0: phrases like, Long live the King, may he live forever, and all yeah. this stuff. And the deeply religious context of it all.
2: Yeah, yeah. That high Anglican, which is just about Catholic. Um, Yes. (laughs) I'm not allowed to say that. But, you know, I was a little bit surprised. This whole notion that it was God's will that Charles is the king and blah, blah, blah. Talk about time out of mind. Talk about an anachronism.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, that the Republican movement in Australia... Peter Fitzsimons and then Craig Foster taking the chair of that particular organization, they're still focused on who can be head of Australia. Now, you and I didn't know each other, but we were both at the Constitutional Convention, weren't we, in Canberra in 1998? And I heard some terrific speeches and intense and deep analysis. Really, what a republic's about is not who's head of state, but where power and authority resides in our constitution. Changing the head of state does not a republic make. And I think we're being fooled and misdirected on that particular issue. And so when we come to a, a republican referendum, which I do hope we do in the next iteration of this Labour government, we really have to get our eye on the right ball, I think. What do you think?
2: Absolutely. And I, and I think, actually, it's important to do the voice first. There's no point having a republic without that in place, exactly. with that that whole process in place. And, and maybe the Republic doesn't even come till after the treaty. That, that would be fine by me. But yeah, you're right. The official Australian Republican Party model, which is, you know, pretty much the one that was deferred in 1999. And this whole top down, let's have sports stars associated with the blah, blah, blah approach that they've got is just, you know, so ill judged, I think. People want a Republic, but you're going to have to give them the model that they want to get it up. And that's not just a tokenistic change to a glorified governor general.
0: That's right. And I think the kitchen table conversation model suits this perfectly. So people can wrap their head around what on earth, for example, section 61 of our constitution, which gives executive power to the queen. And it's as simple as that. We need to change that and then comb through the constitution. And it's just infused with the idea of crown having sovereignty it's strange that we have the word Commonwealth, which really means Republic. We need to place in section 61, we the people as the legitimate source of power and authority, a people's Republic. That's what we need really. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. But
2: I think it's important to do that in conjunction with the voice treaty truth sequence and recognize the, the connections between all that. This is a very long and ongoing debate that we're gonna have to have. You know, you do wonder sometimes how up to this debate we are when you look at what's happening with the Stan Grant thing at the moment is an, is an interesting insight into right. where we are actually are.
0: The voice is complex enough, but the republic is going to be very complex. We're a creaky 19th century constitution built in the empire. It needs a lot of renewal. Margot, how are you viewing that? Do you think we're up to a, a debate about... Let, let's hope that the referendum on the indigenous voice gets through. I shudder to think if we fail on that one, it's just horrific to think about that. But then we move on to the Republic. How do you view that?
1: Well, I voted no to the Republic referendum because I don't think a Republic is about crossing out one word and putting in another one. To me, if we're going to make be a Republic, we've got to say what we stand for. So I'm not saying there has to be a Bill of Rights or, or anything like that, but there has to be something that says what Australia stands for, what our values are. Tim is spot on. I mean, if we cannot get Aboriginal recognition in the Constitution, we, you know,
0: <laughs> that's it. But
1: you know, um, as far as the coronation went, I, I think it feeds into my view in a way. Like, I, I didn't watch it because I've been following British politics and, and and what's going on in Britain very closely since the Boris Johnson um, defenestration. That is a dying country, and and I didn't want to watch the coronation because I. I saw bits and pieces of it on the news, and it's a, it's a parody. It, it's, it's now a parody. It is the fall of the British Empire. Like the, the, the monarchy is a tortured soap opera. That's all it is. And all this pageantry and everything, it's all they've got left. And, and I, I'm actually quite sad about that. I mean, our, our legal system and our, a lot of our values of the rule of law come from Britain. That's over. Uh, so, what do we stand for now? And of course, that feeds into the current security situation where we seem to be just becoming the 51st state. We are, become, in a way, with AUKUS and becoming completely integrated with a world leader, which you'd have to say has a risk of descending into civil war. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. I'm not saying we've got any choice, but it would be good if we could have a conversation about what we stand for. about what this young country believes in as its basic truths, and
0: not just a swapperoo job. No, what's the job. point
1: of that? What, what is none, the point? None. I mean, you know, a republic is a statement of who we are, isn't it?
0: Yeah, exactly. And just a quick reminder that while the Gilbert and Sullivan parody was going on in Westminster Abbey, the Metropolitan Police in London were out arresting people for protesting, arresting people just standing by. They were obviously out of control. There's something pretty scary going on there. And I agree, the UK is in deep trouble. Well, their police force
1: doesn't work. Their mail service doesn't work. Their visas don't work. Their hospitals don't work. Nothing, nothing works. Meanwhile, you've got this incredible, systemic, endemic political corruption. And you go, oh, <laughs>
0: oh! <laughs> and of course, that hierarchical system with the king sitting at the top, the aristocracy, unelected House of Lords, which still hasn't got itself which sorted.
1: basically pay to get in the Lords with political donations,
0: handing I mean, out peerages. What the fuck! What yeah. is
1: going on?
0: We've touched on the USA. Let's go to the USA now. And I want to talk very quickly about Twitter and Musk, et cetera, in a moment. But what are we seeing? How feasible is it, Tim, that Donald Trump could return to the Oval Office, do you believe?
2: Yeah, it's, it seems very feasible. Um, he, mm. He's sort of proven his own adage about he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and he, he wouldn't lose a single voter. He still completely owns... The Republican Party, you know, which yep. is the only alternative party of government and the presidency in in that country, DeSantis was looking for a little while like he might be able to challenge Trump, but he's he seems to. I mean, he's he's such a piece of work anyway. But yeah, um, more dangerous than Trump in a way. I, yeah, I think more dangerous. I think he's more radical in a lot of ways. Than yes. Trump is a complete and utter gilead bag. He doesn't have the popular appeal that that Trump does by almost the opposite. So I I don't think he's a genuine contender. And given that, I don't think anyone else is going to run against Trump. So then it becomes a matter of, well, can Biden beat Trump? I actually think he can. I think there is, a, and this has been shown in some state and local and house elections and governor elections recently, the Democrats keep winning these seats. And often it's down to Not dissimilarly to Australia, it's the mobilisation of women. Of course, they have a different voting system, you have to get out the vote and all that sort of stuff. But women are coming out to vote. The abortion issue is a huge thing and all the various bodily restrictions that somebody like DeSantis and, and the Republican Party in general seem to be wedded to is actually deeply unpopular in that country. And so
0: with the book bans, et cetera. The, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the ability of very small minorities to run the society. And you see, you know, librarians and schools and all the rest of them cowering to that intimidation and the threat of violence. So
2: I think it could look very similar to the last election.
0: With Trump sailing through on about 30%, you know, big GOP lineup, knocking them off one by one, them dropping yeah. out... Thirty percent becomes the candidates, then first past the post voting, and then the electoral college, and here we go.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's such a, a weird system at the end of the day that that really suffers when you put it under this sort of pressure. It's not built for this sort of pressure. It kind of cruises through and everything's okay. But we normal people are, are winning by a reasonable majority. But um, when when that doesn't happen, um, it, it's open to all sorts of abuses and from from the electoral system up you know the the ability to stop people from voting in america is um manifold and um and is often exercised by particularly the republican party you know just to stop people voting so it's a horribly manipulable system um, by people with ill intent and there are just plenty of people with ill intent
0: within that country And then journalism in the media, as the CNN town hall with Trump and Caitlin Collins was emblematic of, we're going down that same path again. They're all going around in circles, biting their tails all over again. They just don't know what to do with Trump. They don't know how to handle him. CNN's
2: attempt under Chris Litt to recenter CNN and therefore this somehow means inviting Donald Trump on and letting him tell wise for an hour and a half is on one level you can kind of see the logic of it, but it doesn't work and they really need to do better that they don't seem to know what to do, or they, they, they're just not willing to, to really put the work in that's needed to address the threat that he reckons. And, and you know, the, it, it just goes to a much deeper problem within, I think, particularly US journalism, this, this whole notion that, you know, your first loyalty really has to be to democracy, not to notions of balance and objectivity. There's no free press without democracy. So your loyalty has to be to that. And and a lot of the mainstream media in America really don't accept that. They've openly said it, the you know, editors of the New York Times and the Washington Post and the, the big cable companies like CNN actually prioritise this weird notion of what they call objectivity or balance, and it's just endlessly exploitable by those who decide to exploit it. You know, the Steve Bannon thing of the way to deal with this is just to flood the zone with shit, works. The media have been bad at responding to the flooding, and they really need to start building some dams around themselves.
0: You know how long I've sort of focused on interviewing as a journalistic tool, if you like, or an act as one of the fundamental acts, and watching Caitlin Collins, Trump flooded the zone with shit yeah. there in the town hall. Well, and there
2: was nothing she could do.
0: Not really, not really. I mean, she could have been you know, a bit tougher and... a And copped a huge tirade from him, but it didn't work. And they shouldn't have been there with that particular audience. That
2: was the other thing. CNN set it up with a a sympathetic audience. They specifically told them they could cheer, but they weren't allowed to boo. Everything was sort of tilted in Trump's favor. Whereas what has to be done is is some version of combination of live and not live. You know, replaying it at a later date, not
0: just giving him the airways probably still something to be learned from that Jonathan Swan interview where he discombobulated Trump and, and he sort of had that rather Aussie, sustained, almost insolent scepticism right through the interview.
2: Yeah, he's, he's been one of the better ones, but you know, you,
0: you need that at such a scale. Such a scale and always. How's your obsession with USA politics going, Margot?
1: Well, I sort of take the opposite position in a way. I mean, I'm really worried about Biden. I mean, Biden, the whole premise of of Biden's election in 2020 was that he was a transitional figure who would pave the way to hand over power to the next generation. And everyone thought that he was a one-termer. He was basically sold as a one-termer. It's easy to forget this. Then he made this ridiculous mistake, which I saw, and I don't know how many other people, I'm sure quite a few, to pick Kamala Harris. And she has proved to be a disaster, which she was a disaster as a candidate. She's a disaster now. She's basically hidden. Now, if you're going to be a transitional figure, you want to have a great vice president that you can ask to stand at the next election, like Clinton and, and Gore, for example. Now, yes, Gore lost, but, you know some people say he didn't, but to have a situation where you've got a gerontocracy, you've got, you know, Diane Feinstein, I think she stood when she was 85 for the Senate again. Now she's a walking dead, really, and, and there's all sorts of problems in the Senate with numbers. It's the same thing. I mean, you can see why it's very difficult for, for Biden to say, I'm not standing next time, let's have a, a, an open primary when the party is so split. So, I mean, my big fear, if it is Trump, and I still think there's a reasonable chance it won't be, because it's the end. It's it's the end of America, if it is. He said he's bringing back Michael Flynn, as his, his, his national security advisor. He's going to pardon all the, the insurrectionists. He's going to have mad people running the show.
0: Clean out the public service.
1: It's the end, you know. My huge fear is that, that Biden will have a heart attack or a stroke or or move into dementia, you know, it's not a COVID election, this one. He's got to be seen. He's hardly ever seen now. To have a rerun of Biden and Trump, I mean, you've got to be joking. You really do. If it is Biden v Trump, what is the percentage chance that something will go terribly wrong for Biden during the election campaign? What would be your percentage, Tim? How old will he be? I mean, it's just frightening. It's frightening.
2: Yeah, it, it's terrifying, and and I think you've kind of nailed the the situation. Is Trump is as much a symptom as a cause. You know, the the fact that the Democratic Party can't really come up with anybody who can really stand against him, the fact that they haven't been able to transition from Biden tells you a lot about the state of their politics in general. And, and yeah. it's a it's a real deeply concern.
1: split. Like they, like Diane Feinstein, she should she should resign for bad health. But the reason she's not is because Gavin Newsom, the, the Californian governor, will appoint a left winger. So Nancy Pelosi's daughter is basically being Diane Feinstein, like Molly her and getting her to be able to put her hand up for a yes vote, et cetera, to try so that she holds on so there can be a primary next time that Adam Schiff will win. Yeah. I mean, really, if it's got to that, that is a party in total crisis, isn't it? I agree. Total crisis.
0: Yeah. Just a quick line from both of you on Twitter and Elon Musk. What is Twitter now, Tim? It's not, not what it used
2: to be, unfortunately. Um, look, I, I think it's. I don't want to be too down on it. Um, I think if you're careful and you stick in the my feed side of things rather than chosen for you side of things, in other words, follow the people that you follow rather than what the algorithm throws at you, there is still a reasonable chance that you maintain a decent community um, that still has the value that Twitter's always had as that sort of community. You know, a, a personal issue that I have with it is that he has tweaked the algorithm to bury any substack links. And you know, Substack's my kind of main outlet for my ongoing writing. It brings me in a certain level of income as well through paid subscriptions, and it really relies on that nexus between Substack and Twitter to maintain itself, to maintain that subscription flow and, and readers and the reach of the post that you want. If I put a Substack link up in the past before he buggered up the algorithm. I could get, you know, reach up to, you know, somewhere between fifteen and sixty thousand for a, a really popular tweet, tweeting one of the links.
0: Now, if I put
2: up the link, I'm lucky to get a thousand, a reach of a thousand.
0: You're now asking us to, to Google up the title. Yeah,
2: yeah. that's right. I just put up the the title with the image from the post, and I'm um, tell people to Google it, and that seems to be pulling in, you know, around about ten thousand views and stuff like that which is you know which is okay but it's a fraction of what it used to be so you know there's that aspect of it and that's not just me that that, there's a lot of people particularly in australia in alternative media who use substack and it was starting to develop as you know as quite a nice little community around that and there was a lot of you know cross-posting and cross-linking it was like the old blogging days in a lot of ways and um you know a lot of us follow each other and we have the same audience you know who are um, subscribe to a range of Australian sub et etc. And and it's really put a, a knife to the throat of the ability of those uh, newsletter writers to reach the audience in the way that you would like to. So he's definitely changed Twitter for the worse. But, I th- you know, I think there are bigger issues. He, he's a deeply unpleasant person. His politics are dreadful. He's nowhere near as smart as he thinks he is. And he has opened up the platform to a lot more of the sort of the darkness that you don't want on those sorts of platforms, which is hard to control at the best of times. He's making it even harder, and that's not a good thing.
0: And Tim, if Tucker Carlson does pop up on Twitter, which he seems to be aiming at and creates sort of a a broadcast platform as well within the social media platform, others may follow. That could transform it yet again, couldn't it?
2: Yeah, it won't won't be a positive development, that's for sure. I'm I'm, I'm not quite sure how that's all going to work.
0: Well, you just have to put up an hour's video, I
2: guess. Something like that. You know, you can still block and you can still tweak your feed to avoid that sort of stuff, and you can hopefully avoid the
0: worst of that sort of stuff.
1: But it is hard. Margot, Twitter, Twitter for you. For me, you know, coming back after being a political journalist, what I loved about it is that you could get the press statements direct you could get the speeches direct your twitter handle politicians etc was their their direct link to the to the people that isn't happening anymore i, I couldn't find julian lees's resignation statement he didn't bother yeah. putting it up on twitter he put it on facebook bridget archer hasn't been on twitter I, I tried to find her speech through her twitter handle she hasn't been on twitter for six to eight months I did a a direct action thing before the New South Wales election, you know, reporting direct actions to try and stop the native forest logging in New South Wales state forests. And there was basically none of the activists were on Twitter. Go back to 2014 when I did one the lead blockade in the Liverpool Plains. It was absolutely vibrant. The hashtag, all the activists were there. They'd migrated. It's not useful anymore in in that sense. So that's the first thing. Obviously, like Tim, you know, I don't do Facebook or Instagram or anything. I'm a private person. So, Twitter is is a public facing thing. No fibs. Audience basically comes through Twitter through my Twitter feed. So. It affects that. Blue check marks. I mean, for goodness sake, I listened to a podcast on the bulwark with Kara
0: Cara Swisher.
1: Absolute, you know, very, very interesting on, on digital stuff, etc. And I thought, oh, I'll tweet that. So I put Kara Swisher in the search box and up come about 35 Kara Swishers. You can't tell which is which because there's no effing check mark. Another little thing. Every morning I wake up, I'm getting at the moment 15 spam messages a day in my DMs. Wow. It, it's just fallen apart it's fallen apart and like tim i'm gonna keep going and, and hope for the best but it's awful i don't care about the dark side and musk and his right wing because as tim said i mean the great thing like when i had web diary what destroyed web diary in the way was trying to moderate bloody comments and what i loved about twitter is i could choose who i follow i could block who i didn't like i don't have to have any problems on twitter with that sort of stuff it's a terrible situation and it's dying. There's no doubt about it. It is dying.
2: Best description I've heard of it is Elon Musk paid $40 billion for a $10 billion company and it's now worth $2 billion.
1: Well, I mean, that's that's my only hope, that if it, if it goes down to $2 billion or $1.5 billion, maybe a, a consortium of rich philanthropists can get together, set up a foundation and say, this is actually a public utility. That's my last hope. <laughs> and I'd, and if they want to crowdfund, I'd, I'd donate. And I reckon a lot of tweaks would. I'd, I'd, yeah, you know, I'd give you them right. 100 bucks. You get 100,000 people with 100 bucks and you got something, haven't you? Yeah.
0: Okay, in a moment, we're going to wrap our conversation just with a final few words on the Labour Party and the Labour government. But before we do that, Tim, AI, another major disruptive moment in the digital revolution, generative artificial intelligence.
2: Yeah, no, without a doubt. It's way too early to be making prognostications about where this is all going to lead. But um, we should be in no doubt that it's going to have a huge influence on employment, on media, on the dispersal of news, the, the quality of the news, the quality of information that is available through digital means. You know, on one level, it's, it's quite incredible. And there even now, there are things that I think it's um, fantastically useful for. I've just signed up for the GPT-4 most recent iteration where it scrapes stuff from the web in real time, and so is is not just dealing with data sets that stopped in 2021. It's it's using information right up to the present, and it it does you know a pretty brilliant job of summarizing. The, some some of the things I've done, you know, asked it to summarize recent news stories on say the voice or something like that. And it it does a pretty good job of that, and it gives you a lot of links that you can use and and verify and check
0: and and all that sort of stuff. So as a research tool, essentially?
2: A a little bit as a research tool. I think it's more the summarizing ability that I'm using it for at the moment.
0: Um, Mm. But
2: I have spoken to people in various industries, including a couple of very big companies, tech companies, um, who are using it. Um, and I, I won't name the company, but a big tech company. I spoke to someone the other day and I said, are you using it? And he said, of course we're using it. And I said, and what does it mean in the short term for you? And, and he basically said, it means we won't we need to employ the same number of uh, kind of entry-level programmers. To write code? To write code. Yeah, a lot of code writing. That's an area that I don't really understand and can investigate myself but that seems to be a huge aspect of what it's doing so yeah it's absolutely world-changing we're going to go through all the same stuff that we've been going through with various iterations of technological change over the last 20 or 30 years. Questions of regulation are going to be um, front and centre. And and I don't think anybody really has the answers to those questions, but it's it's something we have to get our head around.
0: I guarantee we'll be having, we've already got them in certain jurisdictions, China, for example, and some other places, cyber newsreaders. I mean, newsreading is quite a rob- robotic activity anyway, so a real Monty to be replaced by an AI text-to-performance-type application. So we're going to be seeing all that.
2: You've got the strike in Hollywood at the moment, which is at least amongst writers because of concerns about using AI to generate stories and story
0: ideas. And there's been a lot of commentary about the artistic side of ChatGPT and its lack of originality, very poor at writing jokes.
1: And stealing, stealing people's art methods and
0: Both visual and textual. It's
1: predicated on that. Yeah,
0: it's
2: predicated on that. That's what it's
0: about. That's what it's about. It's huge, vast digital plagiarism, in a way, isn't it? Exactly. It raises many questions. Final comments because we're going to circle back to your most recent uh, Substack commentary, Tim, on Albanese's Labour government. And the whole area of climate change is one that just staggered me, I've got to say. The opening of coal mines and the lack of progress on that and without a more focused and concentrated effort in the renewables area. There just seems to be a a laxity, a anything-will-go type approach from the Labour government. You've written quite fiercely about that. How are you feeling about where it's going? Taking account of what Margot's already said in this podcast about steady she goes, the gradualism is to create a sense of maybe a faux sense of unity and and a popularity for Albanese himself. You were pretty fierce in your criticism. Yes, um, I was, and I feel
2: I feel bad about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I sort of do. Like a lot
2: of people on the left, I guess you know, we're glad that Labor are in power. We're glad that the Morrison government is gone. We wish they'd gone earlier. I really do think he is underestimating the willingness of large swathes of middle Australia to take on serious challenges and serious reform in a number of areas, and the softly, softly approach that probably served him quite well in opposition, and maybe actually got him into power, made the 21st, 2022, the election day last year, really did change a lot about the Australian political landscape, and I wish he was a little bit braver in recognising the nature of that change and leaning into it.
1: You know there are many reasons for that. Um, you know one of the reasons they lost in two thousand and nineteen was 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 their climate change policy. You know, remember you know you won't have your SUV and all that. Another reason they, they lost is they sit try seriously tried to do something about housing prices with negative gearing capital gains. Another reason they lost was that they they tried to to clamp down on, on outrageous benefits to the super rich with franking, super rich retirees with franking credits. Now, these lessons have been taken on board. The other thing that you have to take into account is that Labor was left with an enormous structural deficit and an, and an enormous debt. They literally can't realistically do major, major reform costing lots of money in the short term or, or our, our economy will tank. I mean, they've been put in a really, really difficult position. I'm just going to stick to my position, which is at the moment, I am a super fan of Anthony Albanese and his approach. Um, I think he's trying to make the most of the the zeitgeist shift at the election in a, in a careful way. And the... Run up to the next election and the reform proposals is the real test. Got people like Allegra Spender, who is running her own series of tax summits with Ken Henry and a lot of other really good people. She's going to come up with a tax reform white paper, which is going to tax the rich more. Is going. This gets back to Tim's point about the old John Ralston Saul thing. The elites are so lucky. They do the best out of the, the society. So a sane elite is going to, when when things are tough and inequality is too much, they're going to try and fix it so that they stay on top. And I think that's where a lot of the wealthy seats are, provided it's reasonable. There are lots of players trying to move the public into accepting this. And and by the way, doing it at a time when you know a lot of people are homeless or living in tents, Rents are out of control. No one can buy a house. And the cost of living is really, really hurting lower income people. So, you know, it's a really tough one. I mean, you, you don't want people who are really hurting under cost of living to say, oh, well, you know, let's burn the place down like the bloody Republican voters in America. And let's go for some culture warrior crap, which Maybe Dutton's counting on God knows what his philosophy is, but it, it's a really, really damaging one. It's a really ugly one. And to me, I agree with Albanese's precautionary principle. And I'd like to say one other thing. Right. If this referendum is lost, which I think it will be, I'm a Queenslander. And when I see, you know, Noel Pearson and that other guy having an argument about whether we should stop advising to executive government, like when the yes vote splits, which which it did in the referendum, it's over. I think it will be lost uh, and it'd be desperately, desperately bad for Australia if it was lost. And yes, Albanese will suffer. They'll say you should have done more. But guess who will suffer more in my opinion? Peter Dutton. Peter effing Dutton we shall see it's an incredible year second year coming up I don't know if I'm right I don't know if Tim's right I don't know if there'll be a world war I mean we just don't know but as far as I'm concerned the zeitgeist shift is progressing and showing promise and um and I'm happy with the the way um, Albanese is playing this incredibly difficult time in Australian and world history
0: Margot in Comboin, Tim in Melbourne, thank you very much. Great to catch up with you again. We'll talk again soon, shall we?
1: I'd love to. Yes, thanks.
0: If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, as always, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. Transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon, right here... In the Transit Zone.
1: You are now leaving the The Transit transit zone. Zone.